0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, It's my incredible pleasure to introduce the next panel, um, which is on the topic of identity um, and politics in a changing America. Uh, And when I look at the list of panelists that Rob has um, uh, brought together for this panel, you just can't imagine a better set of people to bring to bear on this critical topic uh, right now in in American politics. So we're going to go slightly out of order for technical uh, reasons. And so I'm thrilled to first uh, bring up uh, Vince Hussings, who is professor of political science and African American studies. Uh, and African Studies at the University of Michigan. Professor Hutchings is a leading expert on public opinion, elections, voting behavior, and African-American politics. And especially relevant for this uh, panel, he's probably best known for his work on how politicians use racial rhetoric to influence voters and change their behavior. Uh, And so let's get started. Uh, Please come on up. Good afternoon,
1: everyone. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for those kind words, Gabe. So what I'd like to speak about today in my allotted time is the way, as Gabe has indicated, the ways in which uh, political elites, candidates in particular, uh, use messages, implicit messages in particular, to try to activate or what we call prime the racial attitudes of voters. I think very much in keeping with some of the comments that came out on the first panel as well. So implicit racial cues is what I want to begin speaking about, and perhaps in the current era, we're uh, maybe especially used to explicit cues, but implicit cues uh, are ways in which um, campaign communications or campaign appeals can uh, encourage people to bring different judgments to bear um, on decisions regarding policy preferences or candidate preferences, And the notion that makes implicit appeals distinctive relative to explicit appeals is the absence, as you can see there, hopefully if you can see that in the back, uh, is the absence of racial nouns. So the notion here is that in an effort to uh, provide plausible deniability, candidates will sometimes talk about race without appearing to do so. And I'm going to give examples moving forward. I'm going to make reference here to two different uh, experiments and some results drawn from a body of work that I've done in the past, and uh, then conclude with some comments about this, uh, the current state of American politics. The first experiment is from a project I did with co-authors Nick Valentino, my colleague at Michigan, and Ishmael White, who's a faculty member at Duke. And what we did is we exposed our, uh, this is going to give you a sense about what I'm referring to when I use this phrase, implicit cues. So I'll give you examples. Uh, we exposed the participants in our study to different versions of a, they were randomly assigned to one of different, uh, several different versions of a George W. Bush ad from the 2000 uh, presidential campaign um, that uh, ratcheted up the extent to which racial uh, cues were present in the communication. And in the second experiment I'm going to move forward a little bit in time and focus more on the uh 2008 campaign featuring of course uh, Barack Obama and uh, John McCain. Uh and the point of the second uh uh experiment is to demonstrate that this process that I'm going to be describing very briefly uh, this afternoon is not something that's uh peculiar just to one of the political parties. Actually uh, I and my various co-authors on the project, the second project, by the way, is with um, Vanessa Cruz-Nichols, who's at Indiana, uh, Spencer Piston, who's at Boston, and Legina Gauss, who's at UC San Diego. And in the second experiment, we are going to also involve implicit cues, but uh, here it's going to be regarding kind of um, the racial content uh, or the racial background of the people in the ad of an actual uh, Obama ad. All right, experiment one. Uh there's a control condition that's just a product uh, ad, and then we have uh two um, treatment conditions where race is either diminished, by which I mean it's only basically white uh participants in the ad or, or individuals in the ad, and um the whites are depicted in such a way that's pretty innocuous and not designed to kind of uh, encourage people to bring their, uh, to, to discuss or to think about, or to bring to mind racial considerations. And then there's another version where we swap out slightly different images. And I should say before I show you this ad on the next slide, uh, by the way, on the next slide, it'll uh, I'll show you first the, the genuine product ad. I think it's a Durablast ad, which will be for about 30 seconds or so. And then I'll show you the Dr. George W. Bush ad. What my colleagues and I did in this uh, ad is we took a genuine Bush ad, removed the narration, sliced together slightly different images, interspersed with the real images, and then layered on top of that narration that we wrote, and then we hired uh, a faculty member at Michigan to provide the voiceover to make it appear to be a genuine ad. But but the ads, the two ads I'm about to show you, are completely uh, fictitious, or at least generally uh, fictitious. But the point is that innocuous, non-racial language that candidates typically use can be designed in such a way to encourage people to think about race uh, simply by pairing them with the appropriate set of images. So references to wasteful government spending might just be uh, traditional ideological rhetoric, but when you talk about wasteful government spending and then you uh, highlight images of African-Americans, that might suggest something else. Now, you might say, well, how is that an implicit uh, effort? because we're showing images of African-Americans. Well, there's no, the narrator is not saying, and oh, by the way, blacks abuse welfare. So there's no reference to race. And if there's pushback um, in a real setting, a candidate is in a position to say, I, I don't know why you're injecting race. That's not what I was talking about. I was just talking about wasteful government. So, so pay attention to the images, but also to the language that is uh, associated with those images. No multimillion-dollar
2: contracts. No victory laps. Not even a winner's circle.
3: But if you think these weekend warriors who run the Score Desert Championship Series take anything for granted, think again. Which is exactly why they run with a Duralast battery from AutoZone. A battery so tough, so dependable, we back it with a two-year free replacement guarantee. The next time you hit the road, don't settle for anything less.
2: George W. Bush, dedicated to building an America with strong values. Democrats want to spend your tax dollars on wasteful government programs, but George W. Bush will cut taxes because you know best how to spend the money you earn. Governor Bush cares about families. He'll reform an unfair system that only provides health care for some, while others go without proper treatment because their employer can't afford it. When he's president, every hardworking American will have affordable, high-quality health care, George W. Bush, a fresh start for America. George W. Bush, dedicated to building an America with strong values. Democrats want to spend your tax dollars on wasteful government programs, but George W. Bush will cut taxes because you know best how to spend the money you earn. Governor Bush cares about families. He'll reform an unfair system that only provides health care for some, while others go without proper treatment because their employer can't afford it. When he's president, every hardworking American will have affordable, high-quality health care. George W. Bush, a fresh start for America.
1: All right, so uh, I went by that quickly, mostly because I have limited time here this afternoon. But uh, hopefully you picked up on the fact that obviously there were different images paired with the narration and that it was on its face, if you're not perhaps paying much attention, Uh, not a terribly uh, venomous kind of uh, message. It seems like it's a very uplifting one. Indeed, we had uplifting music that we, I think we got that from a religious uh, radio station or something. Uh, It was designed to make people feel good. So it's not an attack ad. Uh, It was actually kind of um, an ad that was designed to make people feel good. But there were racial images imposed within it. So we randomly assigned who saw the the images, the uh, excuse me, the commercials that I've just shown you, uh, or the control group, with an eye towards seeing how this would influence um, the uh, propensity to vote for uh, the candidates in the 2000 presidential election. So here now, focusing only on those individuals who indicate that they're political moderates, uh, obviously we would expect liberals to be resistant to a Bush message, and we would expect conservatives to be, on balance, already kind of convinced. So the people in the middle, we wanted to see what would be the impact. So in the control group, we can see that there was a lot, there wasn't much difference between conservatives versus racial liberals in terms of their present, a propensity to vote for George W. Bush. Uh, mostly there was just a lot of indecision um, because uh, even though we're now 20-some years removed from that election, at the time, there, we did this in the summer of two thousand and uh, attitudes had not really crystallized very much around the candidates so among those who were relatively moderate and if they had not yet seen an ad there was not much distinction but you can see a distinction does emerge here and especially of course with the implicit cue, the difference here is uh, sig- significantly different relative to the one in the, the two bars in the middle so Um, again, I'm going over this quickly in order to make the larger point before moving to my second experiment, but what's the big takeaway I want to try to drive home here? Uh, It's that even when it is not immediately apparent that race is being uh, made front and center in the ad, politicians have over the years uh, devised ways to encourage people to bring those considerations to bear because we're so used to hearing references to welfare or wasteful government spending or various other uh, code words like, say, uh, inner city or thug or urban that invoke racial uh, considerations even though they're not using racial nouns. And this work, which I very, very, uh, it's a piece we published many years ago now, uh, is a demonstration that, that uh, we've got hard evidence here that it plays out in very much in the way I've suggested. All right, so that was uh, Bush. Now let's move on to Obama. What I'm gonna show you here is very quickly an ad that was a genuine ad that Obama ran in 2008 that actually launched his general election campaign and then a doctored version of it. And before that, I'm gonna show you some content analysis. The basic thesis here is that Obama, like a traditional Democrat actually, very much wants the votes and needs the votes of racial minorities but doesn't want whites to know that he needs the votes of racial minorities. Uh, very quickly, I'll just go through this because I'm running out of time. Uh, here, we simply looked at a variety of ads to see how frequently Obama uh, and McCain used whites in their ads. Okay, takeaway here. Uh, virtually all the people in Obama ads were white. These are just randomly selected, uh, even though this does not at all map onto the demogra- demographics of the country for Obama. For McCain, actually, it does pretty good. This is how it looks for African Americans. It's mostly just a mirror image. Uh, Obama wasn't showing a lot of African Americans in his ad. Okay. So uh, what we do in this ad is what you just saw there, but I'll just show it I'm to Barack you. I'm Barack Obama. This is the genuine. America is
4: a country of strong families and strong values. My life's been blessed by both. I was raised by a single mom and my grandparents. We didn't have much money, but they taught me values straight from the Kansas heartland where they grew up accountability and self-reliance, love of country, working hard without making excuses, treating your neighbor as you'd like to be treated. It's what guided me as I worked my way up, taking jobs and loans to make it through college. It's what led me to pass up Wall Street jobs and go to Chicago instead, helping neighborhoods devastated when steel plants closed. That's why I passed laws moving people from welfare to work, cut taxes for working families, Extended health care for wounded troops who'd been neglected. I approve this message because I'll never forget those values. And if I have the honor of taking the oath of office as president, it will be with a deep and abiding faith in the country I love.
1: That ad is, again, a perfectly innocuous ad. It's a biographical ad. It's also an ad in which there are almost no black people uh, other than the candidate himself. If you really look closely at the still image, the black and white image, when he's a community organizer, You might be able to find a couple of black people in the background, Uh, but that's pretty much it. So um, on its face, it just appears to be a pretty innocuous biographical ad. But now I'm going to show you the ad that he might have run, that he could have run, but that he didn't run. And then I am going to transition to uh, not who, whether or not it affected whether or not you voted for the candidate, but whether or not you thought the candidate was a Muslim or was not born in the United States. And then I'll conclude and I'll be done. I'm Barack Obama.
4: America is a country of strong families and strong values. My life's been blessed by both. I was raised by a single mom and my grandparents. We didn't have much money, but they taught me values straight from the Kansas Heartland where they grew up. Accountability and self-reliance, love of country, working hard without making excuses, treating your neighbor as you'd like to be treated. It's what guided me as I worked my way up, taking jobs and loans to make it through college. It's what led me to pass up Wall Street jobs and go to Chicago instead, helping neighborhoods devastated when steel plants closed. And that's why I passed laws to moving people from welfare to work, cut taxes for working families, extended health care for wounded troops who'd been neglected. I proved this message because I'll never forget those values. And if I have the honor of taking the oath of office as president, it will be with a deep and abiding faith in the country I love.
1: So, um, in, so that's the ad he might have run, but he didn't. Now, in the first of the versions of these, uh, the genuine version of the ad, he shows his family, of course, but he I don't, think I, I don't think I saw Michelle in that ad. Did you see? I didn't see her in that ad. I didn't see the girls in that ad either. Um, so he wanted us to see his mother and to know this, of course, is his mother, and those grandparents did, in fact, raise him, uh, but I think he wanted people to know that. He didn't just want to say it. And I and we argue that it had an impact, indeed, as I'll show you here. It did very much have an impact on the propensity of people to believe that he wasn't born uh, or was, excuse me, born in the United States. The version of the ad um, that was the original one doesn't have much of a partisan effect. But in this one, um, you can see the one that he didn't run, we would argue he didn't run it for a reason. He wanted to highlight his white family. And why did he do that? Because he wanted to diminish the extent to which people thought he was an other, um, that he's not—he's black, but he's not quite like those other people. And as a consequence of that, uh, it had implications for the extent to which people bought into the rumor, and similarly with respect to the uh, belief about him being a Muslim. So uh, let me just conclude here by making a number of points. I mean, the implicit uh, messages are something that are pretty frequent. I know we tend to focus on the politician of the moment, and obviously the current president engages in quite a bit of uh, racial appeals, implicit and explicit. But we shouldn't fall prey to the notion that he is somehow unique in that regard. Uh, politicians have been doing this for some time, and they do it in both parties. Uh, they do it for different reasons, but they do it nonetheless in order to... Uh, basically, they do it because it works, Uh, Republicans are trying to link Democrats to disfavored minorities, and Democrats are trying not to be linked with disfavored minorities. So the concluding point I want to uh, leave you with here this afternoon is really that if we are serious, because of course, had I given my comments primarily focusing on the Republicans, if I can read this room correctly, I'm going to assume that most of you would have been very enthusiastic about the message, and about how odious that strategy is, which it is. But you're perhaps a little more troubled when I point out that the side that you may be more sympathetic to also embraces the same strategy. If we really want politicians to stop doing this, then we have to dis- we have to you know raise uh, um, criticisms, but not just when they're being done by the side we don't uh, agree with anyway. We have to do it when, especially when the candidates who belong to the parties that we are already predisposed to agree with. And I'll I'll end on that point. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, fans. Uh, It's my great pleasure to introduce Marisa Abrahano, who is professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, her research interests are in American politics, particularly racial and ethnic politics, political participation, voting and campaigns, and the mass media. She's the author of numerous articles and several award winning books. The most recent one, which is uh, perfectly set for this panel, entitled White Backlash Immigration, Race, and American Politics, uh, which was published by Princeton University Press.
5: Thank you so much to everyone here, um, and I'm delighted to be here today. So the task of this panel uh, was to discuss uh, the, the idea that many folks attributed the election of Donald Trump to backlash against growing racial diversity in this country. And so we were asked to comment on trying to understand what that relationship is between this demographic diversification and political change. And what are the prospects for unity going forward? So uh, this book largely investigates this question, and so I'm delighted to present some of the main uh, sy- uh, kind of synopsis today. Now, this is a book that I, as a uh, collaboration with my colleague at UC San Diego, Zoli Heinel. And the basic premise is something that we all know and see almost every day on a daily basis is that immigration has uh, vastly changed uh, the political landscape and the demographic landscape of this country. Uh, Today, demographic change has resulted in the fact that our nation is not, uh, this was last year's statistic, 12% foreign-born, but currently 13.5% foreign-born population uh, Latinos are now the largest uh, racial and ethnic minority in the United States. They're projected to become one out of every four Americans by 2050. Uh, Asian Americans are the fastest growing immigrant groups. Um, and the other important reality is as we're seeing the rise in the ethnic racial population, the portion of whites has fallen from 90% to 65% of the United States. And the key thing to remember here is that whites will lose majority status from a population standpoint by 2050. So as we all know, how, the question then that we, that we pose in this, in this book is, how exactly is this transformation affecting American politics? Right? Now, immigration, can, has there's both sides of the coin when we think about immigration. On the one hand, it does raise fears about jobs, job security, welfare culture, this is much of the rhetoric that we often hear about immigration, that uh, there is this infusion between this cultural argument about about changing who we are as Americans. You can even imagine the prominent uh, slogan that was used by Donald Trump of making America great again has some kind of nod towards the changing demographics of the country. But also there's been this very constant narrative proposed by not just political elites, but also reiterated by the media about the fact that immigrants in particular are taking away jobs from Americans, right? That's, that's a very common theme that we hear. Um, so there's that piece. But on the other hand, there's also very positive... Uh, conversations about immigrant, immigration that they fill a vital economic role, many jobs that native-born Americans are not willing to adopt. They enrich the culture and diversity. They lead to greater acceptance of, uh, of equity and inclusion in this, in this country. Um, but So those are the two sides of the baits, right? But as we've seen, I would ar- we would argue in this book, in the last 20 or 30 years or so, immigration and it's how it's linked to race Uh, has become increasingly infused into debates about policy and parties. So the question that we pose is, is the changing population causing a broad conservative backlash amongst white Americans? So in this book, in in our book, we address this question by examining three different uh, political outcomes. So the first one being party identification. So is this demographic change particularly driven by immigration? Is that, is that causing a rightward shift? In the, in the partisan preferences of white Americans. Number two is that also moving white Americans to become more inclined to support Republican candidates, uh, not only nationally, but in also other lower level elections. And then finally, we investigate the role of which demographic transformation, particularly the percentage of the immigrant population, is that leading to states adopting more restrictive anti-immigrant policies. Okay, not just strictly defined to immigration, but other issues that are related to, uh, that can impact immigrants as well, such as education being one example. Right. So that's, that's the basic outline of the book. Um, now, the theor- our theory and our major argument is that we do think that immigration, and we make the point that it gets tied to partisan politics, uh, and for the, for, the main, for the following reasons. Number one... Uh, Immigration is just something that, like I sort of said earlier, is too big to miss in our daily lives, right? Um, Especially if we think about context states like California, urban centers um, within California in particular, immigration and large immigrant communities are just sort of an everyday aspect of our lives. Uh, But even if you don't live in areas or regions around the United States that are not heavily concentrations of immigrants, right? Immigration... Especially I would say in the last several years or so has really been emphasized uh, pretty heavily by the mass media okay um, and so for that reason immigration is really all around us okay if we just have to think back about the most recent presidential election immigration was certainly one of the most uh, salient issues that wa- that were being emphasized by by both of the major party candidates now the, the, the key argument that we make is that there's also a very prevalent and dominant threat narrative that's infused not only by the political rhetoric, primarily the Republican Party, but also of the mass media, right? So elites tend to emphasize this loss of jobs, declining wages, fiscal costs associated with all these types of policies, basically these social services, but crime, and then overall just a cultural decline, Okay um and so because of that prevalent threat narrative and one that is really supported by the mass media, this is what we really think is driving this 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 backlash amongst amongst white Americans um, and then, if you actually look at some of the public opinion polls that specifically ask about immigration, many white Americans do buy into this threat narrative. So for as an example, 70% of white Americans feel that immigrants are a burden to society. Uh, 62% think that they add to the crime problem. And also, more than a majority, 59%, do think that they take away jobs from Americans. Okay, so despite what the actual statistics and the facts are, these are the this is what the public opinion polls suggest. Now, as we all know, increasingly as well, the parties have started to offer very distinct positions on immigration. So this is Trump. Obviously, we we clearly know where he stands on immigration. It was just a week ago today that he was at Calexico at the U.S.-Mexico border, prominently discussing his proposals about. You know his proposal to close the southern border, which apparently he just reiterated again today. Um, And you know we just have to think about the kinds of policies he's been he's been advocating for in the last couple years about family separation, right? So zero tolerance policy. So all of that is clearly now being entrenched with the Republican Party. Right? Democrats, um, are either pro or agnostic on immigration. Certainly, we don't make the argument that Democrats are the polar opposites to Republicans. Certainly, many of them are still very much conflicted, but they are distinct enough to know that many of them do not have the same exact position on, uh, this restrictive position on immigration as Republicans do. Okay? So, uh, just to, just to summarize what the basic argument is of this, of our, of our book, is that many whites see that America is changing. Um, Many attribute those changes to immigration, um, and that it's driving it in a negative direction. And because the Republican Party offers much stronger opposition to uh, immigration, this is a powerful motivation for them to defect to the Republicans' um, Party. And I think it's also important to note that this is not something that's distinct to our current day um, period, right? We've seen these kinds of shifts before historically. White defection from the Demo- Democratic Party in response to, de- to the Democrats' support of the Civil Rights Movement, um, and there were other clear periods when there were large uh, immigrant populations coming to the United States, and this sort of backlash response that that emerges. Okay, and then even if we think comparatively outside of the U.S., this was mentioned earlier. Um, there's lots of studies, especially being conducted in, in Europe, that find clear linkages between the size of the immigrant population and support for uh, right-wing parties. So to test this theory and our argument, oh, let me talk, say this first, we use a wide range of data on public opinion and political preferences and attitudes, and then we also do an extensive content analysis on, on media coverage uh, of newspapers from the last uh, three decades or so. Um, and so for the interest of time, I'm just going to show you some of the key findings that we, that we have. So here is just a very simple, um, bivariate relationship between immigrant views and partisan choice. So here on uh, the x-axis here, these are more, um, as you move to the right, these are more positive views of, of undocumented immigrants. Um, and then this is, uh, the, and then on the x- y-axis here is the percent vote for the Republican president, and percent vote uh, for Republicans in Congress, right? So the takeaway point from all these figures is that the more positively you view undocumented immigrants in this country, that is uh, core, that is uh, correlated with less support for um, Republicans, your vote in Congress, as well as for the president. Okay. Um, on the flip side, here, if you have more positive views towards immigrants, that's correlated with higher a percentage of folks thinking of associating themselves as Democrats, right? So, at least from a, a bivariate standpoint, you do see this this relationship on these two, on these indicators. The other thing to think about is if immigration is pushing white Americans to the right, um, we should also see steady growth in white Republicanism over time. Okay, so here, if you look at the trends of white partisanship um, over since 1952. Right, you can see that the uh, percentage of, of whites who self-identify as Republicans are increasing, whereas the percentage of uh, Democrats who are of whites who per- identify as Democrats are are decreasing. Okay, and so along with this relationship, we also find that more negative views of um, undocumented immigrants. What we just showed earlier. Um, even when taking into account other factors that have been found to influence partisanship, so demographics, socioeconomic status, religion, this relationship that I showed earlier still still persists. Okay? Um, and so as a result of that, we argue this is what helps to explain this shift in white partisanship over time. Now, we also uh, conduct some additional analysis, like I mentioned, about media coverage, which, as you probably are not too surprised of, is largely negative towards... Um, It's framed oftentimes in a negative manner, and that is also uh, correlated with white partisanship. Um, Our results also show that the size of the state of um, immigrants in a state affects white partisanship and policy preferences. So basically, the trends that we found was that states who have larger Latino populations tend to have more punitive policies in, in those policy areas I alluded to earlier. Um, but what we find as well is that once the uh, immigrant population is large enough, uh, policy actually shifts back to the left, and that was the case that we found, speci- especially here um, in California. The overall pattern that our, our analysis indicates are that white Americans with more negative views of immigrants are more likely to identify as Republican, vote Republican, and favor more punitive policies. Okay, so as the impact of immigration expands, white Americans essentially are shifting to the Republican Party. Right in a nutshell. So, what are the implications of our research? Well, uh, we hope that this research helps to uh, to convince or to, to contribute to the literature by by suggesting that immigration is very much at the core of American politics, okay? I think for much of a the time, there was this acknowledgment that immigration was perhaps more at the periphery, uh, but particularly in the time period that we look at, it's very much central to the kinds of decisions um, and preferences that many white Americans have, right? Um We are continuing to experience this uh, widespread growing white backlash, and this book was written right prior to the 2016 election, but uh, as we collect more data and analyze it in the current day, we can imagine that this backlash is only likely to continue to increase. And so, of course, one of the questions that, that this panel began with is, well, can any, what can be done to change the, any of this, potential, this backlash that we are witnessing? So one thing, like I said, because we have historic, um, historical precedent to give us some insights here. Now, when Governor Pete Wilson enacted his restrictive anti-immigration policies in the late 1980s, um, you know, there was this, we did see this surge in Latino, uh, registration rates and participation and mobilization. So these kinds of, particularly, you think about the anti-immigrant rhetoric, they do have the potential to mobilize groups into being, um, to participate into political action. So that's certainly one possibility. Uh, if we just look at what happened in the 2018 midterm election, it marked a 50-year high in turnout rates, um, amongst the general population. So there, There are signs that this, this kind of, um, this kind of, uh, uh, backlash, if you will, um, that there can be, that we can stop that backlash, but it would require, uh, many more immigrant communities, particularly the Latino community, to actually, uh, get their rates of participation up to what their actual voting eligible population is today. Because as it currently stands, their rates of turnout are far below what what their actual um, voting population is. So, to end on a on a happy on a positive note, th- there are certainly some prospects for for um, stemming this this backlash that we identified. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Thanks very much, Marissa. Next up, I'm uh, thrilled to introduce Patrick Egan, who is Associate Professor uh, of Public Service at NYU Wagner and Associate Professor of Politics and Public Policy in NYU Wilf Family Department of Politics. Uh, Professor Egan specializes in public opinion and political institutions and especially how those two uh, relate to each other. He's um author of numerous articles and books, um, his or numerous articles I should say, and uh uh and the author of Potters and Priorities, How Issue Ownership Drives and Distorts American Politics. We're also very happy to say that Pat Egan is a former Berkeley PhD uh student and uh was a Travers Fellow uh, and that funding helped him uh achieve what he has today. So thanks so much.
3: Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, as, uh, thanks for that nice introduction, Gabe. Uh, I am filled with gratitude today uh, for the support that the Travers family has offered the Department of Political Science here at UC Berkeley uh, and also for the mentorship I, I uh, uh, received while I was here. It's a great place to study political science, as I'm sure graduate students here can attest. Uh, we're really blessed uh, to have uh, the support and uh, larger political science family of UC Berkeley. So I'm going to talk about the notion uh, when we think about identity politics uh, of uh, kind of a, a, a flip of how we usually think about identity and American politics. We usually think about identities causing things. So I am identity X and therefore I have beliefs Y or I vote for candidate Z. And what I'm gonna talk about is an idea that is a little counterintuitive, but hope will make some sense to you after I explain the motivation, which is that sometimes our political beliefs and affiliations cause our identities. Our identities become the dependent variable in a political process. So um, to introduce this, uh, I wanna start with two stylized facts, which we really have been talking about quite a lot already today. The first is that liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans are now quite demographically distinct. And the second is that liberal Democrat and conservative Republican are now identities in themselves. Let me give you a little bit more detail about that. Uh, again, it's going to uh, uh, retread some of the uh, uh, points we've uh, heard from our earlier speakers. So uh, in a process that uh, Liliana Mason, who's really spearheaded the study of this, has called social sorting, it's now the case that liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans look quite distinctive from one another, uh, with regard to standard identity categories such as race ethnicity, sexual orientation, and religion. So here are just a few pictures of that uh, and sorry for the folks in the back of the room if you have to squint I'll try to talk through the pictures. Um, this is data that everyone's going to be familiar with here. Uh, it's from exit polls and surveys of Americans and it shows you that African Americans and to a lesser extent Latino Americans uh, are strong supporters of the Democratic Party and its candidates uh, white Americans are uh, t- uh, consistent supporters of the Republican Party. And Asian Americans, which, as we heard from Marissa and others, are a gr- growing group in American politics, um, have now shifted decidedly toward the Democratic Party, um, with about um, half of U.S. Asian Americans identifying as Democrats, uh, compared to a very different split in the general population. Um, so that's one uh, identity category that is quite uh, divided with regard to its political affiliation. Here's another, which is religion. This is, again, data from exit polls. Um, It's the uh, share of uh, support for either the Democrats or the Republican presidential candidates among five religious groups probably the most important one, or the most the biggest growing religious group in American politics is the nuns, and by I'm a good Catholic boy, I do not mean N-U-N-S. Uh, I mean people with no religious affiliation, uh, they're in red on this uh, particular uh, picture, and as you can see, um, they and Jewish Americans support Democrats by very big margins, uh, they are almost mirror images of born again Christians, they're on orange at the bottom of the picture, who support Republicans by very big margins. So again, on this big identity category, religion, we see really big uh, distinctions in terms of political support and voting. And here's sexual orientation. Uh, you know, it's only, this is something I study a lot, uh, and one of the reasons that's really, uh makes it really interesting right now is that surveys now do ask about sexual orientation in a way that they didn't even do about 10 years ago. And so now we've got good data on what sexual minorities think about American politics and who they support, and you're probably not going to be surprised to learn that they are overwhelmingly supporters of the Democratic Party, which has taken a much more pro-LGBT stance over the years than the Republican Party. So about three-quarters of self-described LGBT voters uh, support uh, Democratic candidates year in and year out.
1: You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500
0: programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now,
6: back to our program.
3: So um, there's kind of a way to think about this. This actually uh, gets a little bit at, uh, an idea that Jess was talking about, which is if we were able to sort of quantify how sorted one, part, one identity group is to one party or another, um, one way to do that is with a number that's called the dissimilarity index. And that is a number that says the share of the group that would have to be reallocated in order for that group to be evenly distributed among uh, neighborhoods, in Jess's case. But in my case, I'm looking at parties and, and uh, ideological affiliations. So the larger the number is in magnitude, the more distinctively the group is sorted into either the liberal democratic camp or the uh, conservative republican camp. And for our purposes, and I want you to remember this, I'm going to come back to these numbers in a minute, Um, Numbers that are big and negative are groups that are very heavily sorted into the the liberal democratic camp. So, for example, um, so African-Americans, a big negative number, as we know, big democratic supporters. Uh, Here are the NONESs, also a big negative number. Uh, Here are LGB folks, big negative number. And here are born-again Christians, a big positive number. Okay, so again, uh, it's just a way to be able to compare across different identity groups, the extent to which that group is unusually uh, concentrated in either the liberal Democratic camp or the conservative Republican camp. Um, Just to, um, by way of uh, showing you, it's also the case that um, at elite levels, uh, this sorting has also happened. So uh, what you see there uh, in this table, those in you back can't see the table, I'm sorry. I will tell you what's in the table, which is essentially that the uh, race, religion, and sexual orientation of our elected representatives here in the U.S. House of Representatives uh, not only mirrors what we see in the general population, but in fact is even more pronounced. Um, so, for example, if you look at the uh, Republicans who are members of the Freedom Caucus, which is the most conservative organized caucus in the U.S. House, nearly all of them is a white... Uh, born-again Christian man, okay? Uh, and if you look at the Progressive Caucus, you have um, a group of uh, representatives that are majority people of color. So again, we're seeing a real distinctiveness not only in the general population, but also among political elites. So um, that is the first Stylist Act, uh, which is that we've got sorting into the liberal, democratic, and conservative Republican camps on the basis of identity groups, the other stylized fact is something that uh, Mo Fiorina and others have alluded to earlier today, which is that partisanship and ideology in contemporary American politics are identities in and of themselves. Um, and liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans exhibit behavior that we've long associated with identity groups. And just as a few examples, um, we now display in-group favoritism and out-group antipathy regarding things like dating, uh, who we'd want our kids to marry, um, economic transactions. There have been fascinating experiments that show that Democrats are willing to pay a penalty so they don't have to deal with Republicans. We also have distinctive preferences regarding things like food, cars, places to live. Okay, So in a sense um, in ways that go well beyond policy, like what we think about different issues, we have this sense of ourselves as a kind of person uh, who does a certain kind of things and associates with certain kind of people that are now more and more closely tied to our politics. And to be clear, it's not like everybody walks around saying, like, I'm a liberal Democrat, hoo-ha. It's more that um, we it's a culture, it's a sensibility, it's a bundle of characteristics that we've long associated with, say, ethnic groups or other identity groups that now um, actually have associations with political groups. Um, So um, here's the thing. When we've got a group uh, or an identity that becomes increasingly salient, um, we have learned from social psychology that a lot of us engage in a process that's called self-categorization and depersonalization. I presented this talk to my my nephew. Uh, he really humored me and he had me into his class in high school to talk about this uh, research. And I said, you know, uh, I asked the class, um, when you're a member of a group, Do you find yourself uh, thinking about who the leader or prototypical member is of that group, and do you find yourself drawn to modifying your behavior and attitudes to look more like that prototypical member? And everybody in in high school, of course, that happens all the time, right, whether it's the, uh, the cool kids or the geeks or the um the the nerds you know um so um the idea is that when we are when we have an identity that is highly salient we adjust our attitudes and behavior to look and um resemble the prototypical member of our particular identity group so that's going to be relevant in this case because when we've got identity groups uh, that are increasingly sorted into the liberal democratic and conservative republican camps and Liberal Democrat and Conservative Republicans are now more important identities, what we're going to do, and I'm going to show you some data that, sh- that demonstrates this, is that we're going to ever so slightly shift our fundamental identities to better align with the prototypical Liberal Democrat, who is a person of color, non-religious, more likely to be a sexual minority, or the typical Conservative Republican, who is more likely to be white, straight, and religious. Okay. So I'm basically going to show you that over time, people engage in this very much, this behavior, uh, to a certain degree. So I'm not the first to say that identity is endogenous to politics. Uh, there's basically a lot of folks who have studied this with regard to religion, uh, and have shown that over time people have been shifting their religious affiliations to better match their political values and political affiliations. Um, it's also the case that some, new, some relatively uh, new uh, avenues of research are looking about how race and ethnicity can be endogenous to politics. I've also written about how sexual orientation can be endogenous to political forces. Um, but uh, I think what I do here is present a, a kind of a unified theory about the conditions under which we might expect this to happen. The data I have are from a very cool data set where people are followed over a four year period and they're interviewed three times, once every two years. And the wonderful thing about this data set, it's from the General Social Survey, is that um, all of the questions about race, uh, sexual orientation, religion, and other identity variables are also asked repeatedly. We typically don't do that in panel surveys uh, because we assume they don't change. But here, uh, those questions are asked repeatedly and I'm able to get a sense of um, how those uh, things might be changing. Um, So what I'm gonna do, uh, just to cut to the chase, is uh, run a very uh, basic analysis in which your identity at the end of the four years period, um, on any number of categories, whether it's being white or being religious or being a sexual minority, where that identity at the end of the four year period is predicted by how you identified at the beginning, so I'm gonna be able to pick up change, and then I'm gonna see how it's predicted by your liberalism, conservatism, democraticness or republicanness at the beginning of the survey. So essentially what I'm, what I'm expecting is that liberals and democrats will slightly shift their identities toward the liberal democratic prototype and vice versa. And so here's kind of the, uh, the, the, the big picture, which is um, a picture that shows how liberal democrats in blue and conservative republicans in red shift their identities over time. The numbers are the proportion of each group. And you'll notice they're pretty small, which is reassuring. It's not like a giant set of Americans is shifting their identities on these things. But um, it's the proportion of each group that is shifting their identity um, in uh, either toward or away, each of those identity categories, over the four-year period uh, after holding constant their identity at the beginning of the survey. So just as an illustration, uh, in the middle of this picture we have uh liberal democrats are 4 percentage points uh predicted uh, 4% of uh, liberal democrats are predicted to shift toward identifying as not having a religion over that 4 year period at the same time 6% of conservative republicans are uh, uh predicted to move away from uh rejecting a no religious category maybe that's not so surprising what's probably more uh interesting or important to you is this also happens about sexual orientation these little stars mean that we have significant change over time. Um, it also happens with Latino identity. Again, small but significant shifts. And also in terms of how people describe their ethnic origins, what country or place on the world are your people from, that also moves in directions that are aligned with political identity. So um, what I want to do is, I'm going to skip this, Just, but if you want to nerd out with me later, we can talk about this. Um, uh, what I want to do is just show that this is really quite aligned with those political prototypes I showed you at the beginning of the talk. Okay? So you remember those numbers, the big negative numbers mean groups in which, liberal, uh, in which identity groups are uh, concentrated among liberal democrats or conservative republicans. And um, what I want to just note is that the shifts um, that I showed you a minute ago, which are on the um, y-axis, are highly uh, related to the extent to which the groups are already sorted in the population. So essentially, the takeaway picture, uh, the takeaway point of this picture is that uh, groups completely uh, uh, considered to further sort um, on the basis of uh, their politics into identity groups that are associated with the two big political coalitions in American politics. So um, it also turns out that this is even more pronounced among people whose party ID and ideology are consistent over the four-year span. So uh, that makes a lot of sense, that people for whom this ident- the polit- political identity is more pronounced and consistent are more likely to engage in this identity-switching behavior. And then the final point I want to show you is just um, that um, if we kind of flip this around and we ask which identity groups are particularly infused with politics, and you can ask that question by basically saying, to what extent are these shifts big compared to the size of the group in the population. If it is the case that there's shifting is taking place to a large degree relative to the number of people that identify with the group in the first place, those uh, groups are gonna be particularly infused with politics, the identities of those groups are gonna be particularly political. And it turns out there's two groups where that is really the case, and that is lesbians, gays, and bisexuals, and those who pronounce no religion. So both of these groups, um, a lot of people arrive at those identities, um, at least in part because they are endogenous to their politics. Okay, It's a really fascinating kind of idea. And one of the ways to think about this is these are both groups that in current American politics are generally acquired rather than uh, transmitted across generations. So generally, gay people are not raised by gay parents. And it is still the case that most people with no religion were raised by religious parents, and they come to that identity later in life. So one of the ideas here is that both of these things, both coming out as a sexual minority and also uh, arriving at a place of having no religious uh, identification, these are adult decisions that are, are made in part because of our politics, and that's what this picture picks up. So to close, um, I think I've shown you that there's this, and I want to say it's small, I want to emphasize this is not a huge, huge widespread uh, um, phenomenon, but a small but significant number of Americans are shifting their identities to better align with their politics, um, and it suggests that we could be more careful in thinking about the future of U.S. political coalitions because if we assume that everybody of a certain identity is going to end up being a certain politi- having a certain politics, one thing is happening is that the reverse is also occurring, and so we can't be entirely sure about thinking about identities as what political scientists call unmoved movers uh, that predict things without being predicted by uh, political phenomenon themselves. Um, I'll leave it there, and uh, thanks very much.
0: Thanks very much, Pat. I'm uh, thrilled to uh, introduce Ashley Jardita, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Duke University. Her research explores the nature of racial attitudes, the development of group identities, and the way in which these factors influence uh, political preferences and behaviors. if you are still looking for presents for your family members, Ashley also has a brand new book out as of February, uh, which is also perfectly titled for this panel, um, titled White, uh, White Identity Politics in America. And it's received a tremendous amount of, uh, of attention from academics and the uh, popular press.
7: Well, while we're getting this set up, I just wanted to say good afternoon. Thank you all so much for being here. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you to the political science department and to the Travers family and to my fellow panelists. I'm thrilled to be in such good company. So um, I'm going to be talking to you about the book. I'm going to present some of the highlights and findings from it. And I know we're sort of running a little bit late on time, so I'll try to be speedy and, and try to catch up on some time. So I'll give you just sort of a taste uh, of what you can find in the book. All right, are good? Okay, so I want to begin by presenting you with a particular context that ought to be pretty familiar to you all by now. So we know that white Americans are losing their numerical majority. They're projected to be losing their numerical majority. This information has received a lot of attention, particularly in the wake of the 2010 census. We also know that in recent decades, we've experienced a a number of important changes in American society as a result of um, the U.S.'s increasing diversity. So we elected the nation's first black president— Um, We elected a rather untraditional presidential candidate in 2016, one who is notorious for making a lot of racialized remarks and racially disparaging remarks directed at racial and ethnic minorities. Um, We've also seen the rise of white nationalists and um, of right-wing groups like the alt-right and the KKK, And some interesting things are happening with respect to public opinion over this period of time. So white Americans now are reporting that their group receives sizable levels of uh, racial discrimination. So this is data from a 2016 Public Research Institute survey, and on it, 57% of whites reported that discrimination against whites has become as big of a problem as discrimination is against racial and ethnic minorities. So this is interesting. And what's interesting about this is that for a long time, I think both the members of the public and lay people and certainly political scientists argued that white people, are not they don't really think about their racial group. They don't have a racial identity, at least not in the way that we've understood racial and ethnic minorities and other marginalized group members to have. And so the conventional wisdom is that whites don't have to think about their race. As the dominant group in American society, they have the ability to take their race for granted. The common refrain that people use is that justice fish don't don't see water. White people don't think about race. But what I'm arguing is that times have changed. And in light of growing diversity in the United States, whites are now starting to think about their racial group in, in a salient way, in a way that is important to them. And they're starting to bring this racial identity to bear on their political attitudes and preferences in pretty profound and consequential ways. So I want to point out to you that before we started thinking about white identity as social scientists, the common way, the most important way that we thought whites brought their racial attitudes to bear on their political preferences was through racial prejudice. So we never really thought about whites having sort of in-group attitudes. We thought all about the out-group attitudes that white people have. And we we spent a lot of time studying racial prejudice and racial hostility and sort of this antipathy that we believe that many whites possess toward people of color, particularly blacks in the United States. And we thought a lot about the extent to which that antipathy was related to white's political attitudes and preferences. But if we step outside of thinking about racial prejudice and we just think about the way social psychologists argue that people understand groups and categories, right? So we know that people have a tendency just psychologically to organize into groups to self-categorize. And once we do that, whatever group is in question, whether it's groups organized around religion, or groups organized around our union membership, um, or groups organized around the color of shirts that we're wearing, right? We have a tendency, once we've put ourselves into groups, to behave in particular ways. And some of those ways are displaying some degree of in-group favoritism. We garner a great deal of self-esteem from belonging to groups. We want to think highly of our groups. And we tend to behave in ways that benefit our groups or protect our groups. So if you start thinking about the world that way, and you start thinking about, well, what does that mean with respect to race? And with respect to race, when white people are starting to think about their group and starting to conceive of themselves as white people with this salient racial identity. So we've got that on the table. The other thing to think about is that in the United States, racial groups are arguably organized hierarchically. So it's not just the fact that we have different racial groups, but we know that whites in the U.S. have a disproportionate share of political and social and economic power. And so what my argument rests on is the idea that not only are whites thinking about their racial group, but they have a desire to protect and preserve their power and their privileges and the resources and the status that they, that they acquire and that they possess by way. Of being white. And so, for a subset of whites, the whites that I'm interested in in my work, what this means is that growing diversity and all of the confluence of things that we associate with diversity, like immigration, like demographic trends, like the election of Obama, this has, for a subset of whites, made them worried about their status and the, and the potential loss of the power and privileges that their group possesses. And so just to reiterate, the common assumptions have been that um, to the extent that white racial attitudes matter, it's through these out-group attitudes, it's through prejudice, and that white ingroup attitudes are far less consequential. But I, what I want to put forth, and I want you all to understand, is that you can be attached to your in-group. You can want to protect and preserve that in-group. And that that can be a force independent of racial prejudice. So my argument is that white identity and possessing this sense of racial solidarity is not the same as racial prejudice. It's not the same as having an outward hostility toward other groups. So another way to think about this is that by all of the ways we measure racial prejudice and racial attitudes, we know that there are many whites in the United States who have some sense of hostility toward people of color, but they don't really necessarily identify with their racial group. They don't have a sense of racial solidarity. And the converse is true. There are a number of whites in the United States who possess a high level of racial identity, but they don't necessarily simultaneously display high levels of antipathy toward racial outgroups. The people who are high on both of those things are the white supremacists, in my data, I would argue. The people who are at the very extremes are the people who do join the KKK and do find these groups appealing. Um, But what I'm now suggesting, what, what this means, the bigger implication is that there are two forces in American politics with respect to white racial attitudes. So on the one hand, you have racial prejudice, which politicians are notoriously good at um, at ratcheting up and, and getting people to bring to bear on their political preferences. We've seen a number of presentations, including Vince's now, that has demonstrated this to be true. But there's another thing going on, right? And it's this concern that some whites have about their group in light of the changing racial and ethnic diversity of the U.S. And that is also now, I argue, an important force in American politics. So what are the consequences of this force? Well, one is that these whites want to protect their group. They're going to support politicians and policies that benefit their group and protect its status. So they're going to oppose immigration. They're going to be more supportive of Social Security and Medicare. and They're also going to be opposed to Obama, and they're more likely to support Donald Trump. I'll talk a little bit more about Social Security and Medicare here in a minute, because I think that might be ob- not be obvious to you. So how do I know that white people identify with their group? Well, I ask them, how important is being white to your identity? And for social scientists in the room, this is not the only measure I use, but this is the most commonly used one on, on public opinion surveys, and it, it packs a pretty potent punch. It does a good job of predicting attitudes, even after controlling for a whole host of things that we might think go into public opinion um, so what I find consistently is that somewhere between 30 and 40% of white Americans report that their racial identity is very, if not extremely, important to them. So this is a sizable group of whites. This is not the very small percentage who who belong to the KKK or identify with this group. The whites I'm talking about here are a much larger group of white Americans. And of course, you know, a sizable percentage say that their identity isn't important to them, and that's important too. So you might be wondering, who are these whites? And I suspect that you probably have a particular image in your mind. Um, if I were to guess, you'd say these are white, working class, uh, Americans who are uh, maybe a, a, a bit older. And it turns out that's not true. Um, so actually, the the individuals who identify as white uh, span across sort of different demographics. Uh, they are right about the mid-range um, in terms of age, so they're not really any older or younger than um, all white Americans. They're slightly older than those who uh who possess a low level of identity? They're not more likely to be men. In fact, I find often that women are more likely to adopt a white identity. Uh, for. A- graduate students in the room who are interested in this, this is definitely an area to poke more at and to think more about. There are kind of two conventional explanations for this. One is that women tend to be more pro-social, so they're more likely to identify with groups, whatever those groups are. And the other is that given the choice between a gender identity and a racial identity, the racial identity is more high status, and people like to adopt more high status identities, so that could be what's going on. The sort of one common demographic trend that unites these whites is that they are less likely to have gone to college. So they're just as likely as whites to have graduated from high school, if not slightly more likely. But many of them didn't go to college. So 71% don't have a college degree. Um, In terms of income, we might think, oh, these are whites who are economically vulnerable, who are situated in working class jobs. That's not really true. They're just slightly below the median income of all whites um, and whites who are low on identity. They're not really any more or less likely to be unemployed. They're just as likely to own houses. Um, There's a slightly larger percentage that report, um, -report self-report a belonging to the working class, but it's not the case that they're overwhelmingly working class individuals. There is some partisan trends, but maybe not to the extent that you might expect. So 55% identify as Republican, 31% identify as Democrat. Um, Some of them are sticking themselves in this independent category, uh, but it's not the case that they're all Republicans for that matter. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about what the consequences of this identity are. And I mentioned to you that one thing is that these whites are opposed to immigration. And that's in part because for many white Americans, there's the sense that immigration is threatening um, the dominant white culture of the United States. and. You know, we know that, you know, over time, the immigrant population has changed in the United States. It's certainly grown. I don't expect most white Americans to know this or to be able to report this particular trend. But they are aware of changing levels of immigration, and we know this from news coverage. So as levels of immigration have increased in the United States, so has media attention to the issue of immigration. And what I find consistently, time and again, is that higher levels of white identity are associated with more conservative views on immigration. It doesn't matter what type of immigration attitude I'm asking about. It could be the belief that immigrants take jobs, the belief that immigrants lead to higher levels of crime, a preference for decreasing immigration, a preference for building a wall along the border, a preference for eliminating birthright citizenship over time, across any any attitude you might ask about immigration. There's a powerful relationship between possessing a higher level of white identity and being more opposed to immigration. And this is controlling for how you feel about Latinos and all the other things that you think might go into informing someone's opinion on immigration. I also find that white identity was associated with attitudes toward Barack Obama and vote choice in 2012. There's been plenty of work demonstrating that whites who were more racially prejudiced were far less likely to vote for Obama. But it also turns out that Obama seems to have been triggering this sort of sense of um, status loss among these whites. So it's not just racial prejudice that was predictive of whether you were going to vote for Obama, but it's also the extent to which you identify as white. So people who are high in white identity, even after accounting for racial prejudice, were twice as likely to prefer Romney over Obama in 2012. And part of why that might be is that white identifiers were also much more likely to believe that Obama was going to favor white people over black people. Sorry, the converse. He was far more likely to favor black people over white people um, as president. And so there was some concern among these white identifiers that Obama wasn't going to support policies or um, have preferences that benefited whites as a group. So the other thing, as I mentioned, and I'm not going to show you the results here in the interest of time, but there's also this relationship between um, white identity and support for Social Security and Medicare. And that's because these are policies that have been traditionally associated with whiteness, in part because of their contrast to the stereotypes that we associate with welfare. So you are certainly familiar with the disparaging and erroneous stereotype of the welfare queen and this idea that um, welfare recipients are sort of taking advantage of, of um, policies. They're demanding that things from governments that they haven't earned. And of course, th- this is a very racialized um, set of attitudes. Well, the idea is that Social Security and Medicare have been associated with whiteness because they're, they've been um, framed as policies that are the reward for hard work. So we're sort of in opposition to welfare. So what I find is that higher levels of white identity are in fact so- associated with um, greater support for Social Security. Okay, so we have all these things. We've got immigration, we've got opposition to Obama, we've got support for Social Security and Medicare, and then we come to 2016. And so this is Donald Trump's website in August of 2015 when he began his presidential campaign. And if you went and you clicked on the position link on the website, this is what you'd see. The only position on Trump's website, only position in August of 2015 was immigration reform. Trump also parted ways with traditional Republican candidates by arguing that he was going to protect Social Security and Medicare. Here's a tweet from Donald Trump in May of 2015. He said, I was the first and only potential GOP candidate to state there would be no cuts to Social Security and Medicare. And it's not surprising then that what I find is that higher levels of white identity are in fact associated with a preference for Trump. So here I've got data from 2016, when um, in January when the primary season was happening, and it turns out that respondents, when surveyed um, about whether they would prefer Donald Trump over any other Republican primary candidate, so not just we're not just pitting Republicans and Democratic candidates here, but just given the choice between any other Republican candidate, it was whites who were higher in white identity who seemed to prefer Trump over for any of these other candidates. And what I want to point out is that Trump is unique in activating this identity. So it's not just the case that sort of any Republican candidate could have come along and um, just by way of being a Republican activated the relationship between white identity and evaluations. Trump was unique um, in, in this regard. So what I find from the, and you can see from the chart here, is that white identity was not predictive of attitudes toward Clinton or Sanders or Cruz or Rubio. There was no statistically significant relationship between white identity and attitudes and evaluations. Toward these candidates. In fact, it was Trump and Trump alone that seemed to activate identity. And so, again, what I want to argue is that there are these two forces now. We've got white identity and we've got white prejudice. And I want to sort of throw out some normative ideas here and thinking about the consequences of this. We spend a lot of time thinking about the effects of racial prejudice, rightfully so, on um, our on politicians and, and political evaluations and preferences. And we're thinking a lot about how racial attitudes are sort of polarizing the parties. But I also want to point out here that in some ways this new um, force in American politics, the extent to which whites are worried about their group, this is not good if we if we care about sort of a racially egalitarian society or moving in that direction because fundamentally what's motivating these whites is trying to preserve a racial hierarchy it's trying to maintain their group's power and privileges arguably at the expense of other groups. And so I think that this is something that we should be concerned about. And we, be, should, we should be concerned about the extent to which politicians can capitalize on this. We know that Trump does this uh, quite frequently, um, referring to you know, people coming from particular countries, um, talking constantly about immigration and the immigration crisis when there's not really a lot of evidence that there is, in fact, an immigration crisis, especially when we think about trends in immigration today compared to even five years ago. Um, and so to offer maybe a potential hopeful message, um, I think that there's evidence that we, we as a society can deal with this. We can combat this to some extent. So I'm thinking about what happened with Steve King, right? Steve, Congressman Steve King, um, was condemned for remarks that he made, uh, basically suggesting, you know, that like, what have, what have non-whites done for civilization? This is a remark that I think some of us find racially problematic and that it's disparaging toward racial outgroups, but a lot of people high in white identity were sort of like, yeah, like white people, like we've done a lot of good things for civilization, um, so this is a remark that seems a lot of seemed relatively innocuous to a lot of people who possess this racial identity. Um, but what we saw is that um, people were not a fan of this. So he was removed from his committee assignments. Um, he was condemned in the media and condemned in Congress. And I think sort of thinking more about that and more about what politicians can do um, to to both a sidestep trying to, to race bait in this way or in any way in particular to sort of echo Vince's remarks about um, candidates from both sides of the aisle sort of potentially trying to tap into both types of racial attitudes. Um, I think that part of what we want to see is more of that from politicians moving forward.
0: Thanks very much to all of our wonderful panelists. If I can have you all come up and sit down. At the table and field, uh, field questions from the audience. That'd be great.
1: Hi. Thank you all very much for your remarks. I'm so, I'm grateful to, um, have heard them. Um, uh, uh, I guess my question is kind of both for Professor Jardine and Professor Abrahano. Um, to what extent, um, do you both see white backlash, um, as, is outgrowth of economic precarity. So, you know, in your, in your, um, regressions, um, you talk a little bit about how, um, white we, people are not necessarily identifying as a working class, but I was wondering if maybe there's something to be said for working multiple jobs or a sense of, uh, economic risk that they have, and if that can trigger a certain level of white identity.
7: Yeah. Thanks, Christian. That's a really great question. And, I I can't say with 100% certainty that there's not some rock with respect to economic anxiety or economic vulnerability that we haven't uncovered that explains levels of white identity. But I've looked really hard, and there's really no evidence that economic vulnerability indicates possessing a, a higher level of white identity. I, I've looked at whether people who are situated in more um, working class jobs, uh, who objectively are less financially well off, um, I've asked them sort of just their own subjective economic evaluations, do you feel as a family or as an individual that you're worse off or that you're likely to be fired or that your economic situation isn't as good now as it was in the past? And there's really no indication that any of those things are related to higher levels of white identity. All
6: right. So I have a question for I think uh, would be uh, best for maybe uh, Dr. Abrahano, but maybe open to anyone who has an intuition about this, which is that I was mostly interested in like the um, how backlash could be addressed, not just in policy, but in like the actual like uh, attitudes of whites. And uh, when it comes to immigration, you mentioned historical precedent, like we've had plenty of immigrant backlashes in American history, whether it's to um, Irish immigrants or Eastern European immigrants and Asian immigrants. Uh, but eventually it seems like these groups eventually become included in the support and identity of being seen as Americans. Um, I'm interested if you know of work or if you have your own intuitions about how these immigrant groups end up becoming Americans in the popular consciousness. And maybe just to give you a jumping-off point, like my own pessimistic intuition is that this seems to be that there's always a new immigrant group that to be scared of and so once the new immigrant group comes then you're more accepting of the previous ones you go from scared of irish people to scared of eastern europeans to scared of like uh chinese immigrants at the chinese exclusion act and now we're scared of latino immigrants so that's my pessimistic intuition i'm wondering if you have your own or if you know of work of how these immigrant groups become seen as americans in the popular consciousness
5: Yes, I think your, I think your intuition is, uh, right on. I mean, I think that that's very much, that's part of the story. I think what makes, uh, immigration amongst the Latino population, and so immigration primarily from Latin America, distinct from sort of previous waves, it's, it's been, it's been persistent and continual for, for many decades now, right? And so sure, there's a huge, there's a significant portion of the Latino population who've, who've been in the United States well before the, the nation's founding, so that's certainly one piece to it, but there is still, uh, over, if you look since the 1970s, 1960s, right after the Hart-Sellers Act, right, this, this immigration from Latin America has been persistent. Now, I think the difference here, and this is the important thing to keep in mind, is that when you ask the average American what they think about with immigration and, and think about that with respect to the Latino population, it's about it, the, the implicit association there is about undocumented immigration. Right, so that, that's a different element than what we've seen in previous waves of immigration is this, and this is the work that's, this great work done by Efren Perez to show that when we think about Latino immigration to the United States, that is implicitly in our minds associated with undocumented immigration. So that carries a whole other level of negative associations that previous waves of immigration, I would say, have not encountered with, with as, with as much stigma. Which is really, which is really goes part, which is part of this story. And so, because of that, and because of the continued emphasis when we think about policy changes and reform with respect towards immigration, it is primarily uh, focused on how do we resolve the issue of undocumented immigration, right? And not, not about how do we change legal pathways of immigration. That's not the, that's not the primary focus.
0: This question is for Professor Egan. Um, you talked about religion, and you, I think you, you described uh, people without a religion as no religion. And um, my question about atheists. And uh, the Pew Research Poll did some, a, a survey some years ago about who you would vote for for president, and 1% would vote for an atheist. Then it improved to 2% some years later, uh, but it appears that still in our society, uh, an atheist has almost zero chance of being elected to political office. And I wonder if you have any comments on that.
3: Uh, sure. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, the, there is a kind of a, a pervasive uh, stigma and perhaps discrimination with regard to atheism in the United States right now um i think that is receding as uh more and more people claim no religion uh folks who study this more in detail than i will can say better than uh, more about this but uh, a lot of people who claim no religion are still as religious and as you know uh profess religious beliefs as those who do uh, proclaim a religious um, uh, affiliation so there's a lot of interesting movement going on right now Um, And what's just notable is that there are a few, it's literally, I think six, members of the House of Representatives who have been, I suppose, daring or brave enough on their official congressional biography to list no religious affiliation. Um, And my sense is that number will slowly move up um, as the stigma recedes. Um, But it is a really interesting and um, understudied uh, aspect of how we think about politicians and other, um,
0: other public figures. Running long on time, so if there's one last question,
1: you know, um, my impression is, as I think a lot about this, is that our our problem with immigration here, among Latinos in particular, is that we've completely mismanaged it, and both sides are mismanaging it for their own political purposes.
0: And if we would manage it properly, it would probably Turn out to be more like more Asians. There's just there's no
1: there's no objective reason to have an animus against Latinos. But the way it's being handled is absolutely atrocious. We need an immigration reform, and we that's that.
3: <laughs> you know, I'll say something real quick, which is I was struck by a point that Mo Fiorina made uh, at the beginning today, which is that there is a strong. American consensus about what to do regarding immigration, Um, and I think it addresses uh, a lot of the policy um, gridlock that you are gesturing toward, Um, and it's one about uh, a path to citizenship for people who are here and rethinking uh, the criteria under which people are allowed to enter the country legally, Um, and a lot of folks in the room may disagree with different elements of that possible proposal, but it is uh, quite striking that we've been uh, at such a stalemate on this for now decades. Um, And I think your frustration speaks to that.
0: All right, let's have a big round of applause for our panelists. Thank you all so much.